You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Driving Law. I am Kyla Leah Ackerman Law, and with me, back again on the podcast, one of my favorite colleagues. Well, I mean, I don't rank my colleagues. <laughs> I'm number one. One of my 28 favorite colleagues. That big drop. Yeah. Well, you, you're one of the 28 favorites because I have 28 colleagues. Um, Brandon Wasco, welcome back. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Um, so I think we'll start today by talking about the, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada releasing a decision, um, in a case that I found very interesting for two reasons. Uh, the first reason I found it interesting was because, as the theme of this podcast makes clear, it shows how driving law can impact, um, issues related to contract law and, and in particular, big issues that were apparently deemed of national importance related to contract law. And the other reason I found it interesting was I did not understand at all how this case had anything to do uh, with national importance, because it seemed to me pretty clear that the outcome should have been the way that the Supreme Court of Canada made it. So let's talk about this. Uh, the case is the City of Corner Brook and Bailey, uh, 21, 2021 SCC 29, for anybody who wants to um, tune in. And basic facts, uh, there's a city employee who's performing road work, and uh, Miss Bailey, driving her, her, her husband's car, strikes the city employee, who then sues Miss Bailey for his injuries, and also... Miss Bailey and her husband sued the city for property damage to the car and physical injury suffered by her. And then she and her husband settled with the city, enter into a release related to the accident. So they sign off saying, you know, we release you from all further claims and then file a notice of discontinuance. Years later, time passes, uh, to quote uh, Virginia Woolf, um, they bring a third-party claim against the city to get them to indemnify them, get the city to indemnify them for the money that they've paid out in the action brought against Miss Bailey by the city employee. Did I summarize that accurately? Yeah, that's, that sounded right. Yeah, I'm complicated and confusing. I am not a contract law expert. Um, so, Brandon, tell us what happened here in their in their uh, their action for indemnification. Uh, well, they, it looks like it was dismissed on the um, trial court level, and then you know, on appeal, um, they did allow them to be stated as a third party, and then uh, the Supreme Court of Canada reverted back to the original trial court decision saying that was correct, uh, which I think I agree with, and I believe you said you do as well. Um, it, it's kind of interesting because the, you know, in dealing with driving cases on the insurance side of things, you rarely see one of these contracts not specifically contemplate um, 
third party claims, third party indemnification, subrogation rights, things like that. And usually because we're dealing with insurance companies that are so used to this that they won't miss something like that. Uh, I'm thinking that this is probably an oversight because it was done through the city's solicitor, maybe, um, and not through, or the city's insurance company, not specifically a motor vehicle insurer, um, because contemplating multiple parties in a motor vehicle accident is second nature for most of these. Um, yeah. You, you really, it's always the case with that. Well, we usually we have at least um, two people involved. Uh, Although sometimes there's single vehicle accidents, there's still passengers and there's always property damage. Uh, cars need to hit something, right? <laughs> Otherwise, there's not going to be any damage. Um, well, they need to hit something. I think the goal is to not have them hit things. Well, for there to be an accident, there to be a claim, the car needs to hit something. Right. Uh, because if it just uh, blows up on its own, then you better hope you had a good warranty. Uh, because no insurance company or there's no claim to make. So... Really? There's, yeah, so there's, uh, um, so you're always considering uh, who else is involved in, in motor vehicle claims, and that should be contemplated in releases, and usually is, but I guess it wasn't here, uh, so they're lucky that the Supreme Court saved them. Now, they reference something called the Blackmore Rule. Um, actually, a bit of backup, because I think a lot of our listeners might not know, what is indemnification? Uh, so essentially, um, when you get sued, um, if there's someone, another party that you think can offset your liability for whatever reason, based that they should be involved in the claim, you can third party them. So you're um, adding them to the claim to either offset all or part of the liability. Um, and in this case, they said, well, uh, the city should be liable for well, whatever the reason was. I, I pulled a, uh, a law school one on this one and only read the head notes, so I don't really know what it was, but uh, maybe they had the, maybe they're alleging that the uh, workers shouldn't have been working in that area or that they weren't properly roped off or whatever the case is, but um, so for some reason the city's liable. And so uh, uh, the other party, the defendant can third party them to try to indemnify indemnificate themselves from from losses, although um, sometimes this happens automatically because usually if uh, someone's if you have a good lawyer and you're suing someone, the goal uh, and the, the strategy is just sue everyone and figure it out later. So you sue the city, you sue the other driver, you sue anyone you can think of, and then um, manufacturer of the yeah. they were using at the road. <laughs> Allege that uh, everyone was drunk and the car wasn't mechanically sound and just throw everything in the pleadings and then kind of sort it out later. Um, but, I had that happen to me when yeah. I was in a car accident. They threw into the pleadings that I was drunk and I was on my way to court. Actually, I got that struck because I thought that that was pretty... Uh, pretty big abusive process. They had no evidence that I was drunk, and I was on my way to court. Very common practice, right? That's why uh, usually in a lot of these cases, you don't need a third party because they like, and especially like, obviously someone wants to get the city involved because they're the ones with the money. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a party that you, if there's a party that you know has money, usually you'll sue them from the offset if, if you can contemplate that they'd be liable. Maybe he didn't want to because they were his employer or whatever, but, um, but in any event, so 
it was the defendant that uh, that decided to bring them in uh, to try and offset liability themselves, and that's the long answer to your question there. Um, well, what is this Blackmore rule that's referred to in the judgment? Oh boy, from 1870. Yeah, I love, <laughs> I love an old rule coming up, but I mean, I can tell you what it is. I have the answer in front of me. Um, the general words in a release are limited always to things or those things which are especially in the contemplation of the parties at the time the release was given. Um, and the point here is that that's been overtaken by the general principle of contract law, the more modern principle, uh, that we read the contract as a whole, giving the words and using their ordinary and grammatical meaning consistent with the surrounding circumstances known to the parties at the time of the formation of the contract. Uh, so I guess if it was the Blackmore rule, if that had carried the day, then perhaps the uh, you know they would not have um, been able to uh, get out of this by, by being the city, but uh, because that's not the case, um, and uh, the more modern rule applies, um, it's it allowed them to be released from. Um, the claim, despite not having specifically contemplated um, the potential uh, indemnification claim that came up later on. The moral of the story is, if you're going to enter into some type of a release, make sure you're absolutely certain that it doesn't release somebody of certain future claims you might still be planning to make against them. Yes, well, Eddie anything. I mean, you have to, that's one of the things that I do whenever I'm drafting a release or reviewing a release. It's just, it's one of the things you have to be the most careful about in practicing law is making sure that uh, everything is covered. That you CYA the, the whole thing because um, if you miss something or if there's something you don't com contemplate and then a claim like this comes down the road, um, it's an expensive lift deductible. So, lift for, for the non lawyer listeners is, is our, our insurance of lawyers. And yes, the deductible is very high. Uh, you don't want to have to pay it. Um, all right, last question on this case before we move on to the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, why, why on earth do you think that this got leaked? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, you probably have better um, experience with applications for leave than I do. I know you've done them before, and I don't. I haven't actually ever done one. Um, and it's it's hard to say. I think you're correct uh, what you said at the offset that it's not exactly national importance. Although, um, I mean, contract laws um, and, and in motor vehicle. Is uh, is something that's far-reaching, uh, so perhaps that could be maybe because it was, um, like I said, with motor vehicle um, claims, there being indemnification and third-party claims, uh, those are those come up so often, which is why I was surprised to see this because it's almost always contemplated in the contract. Um, so that could be why because. It's there's always usually multiple parties in uh, these motor vehicle claims, so uh, they, they felt that it was important to to have that addressed. Maybe it was 
because they they just had a strong case in saying that the court of appeal was wrong. I don't know if they take that into account. Uh, you might probably have better idea than I do. I mean, we never know what they actually take into account because there's never reasons given on leave applications. But I think probably, yeah, if there's you know if there's a situation where an appellate court is clearly wrong, there is a national interest, I suppose, in clarifying that because of the weight that an appellate court judgment can carry, not just in the province where the appellate court got it wrong, but also in other provinces where an appellate court would be inclined to follow um, to follow that reasoning. And so if we have like express rules of interpretation of contracts that have been overtaking the older rules, like this Blackmore rule, um, you know, it might it might be necessary for the Supreme Court of Canada to step in and go, just to be clear, this is not the law anymore. This is this is not good law, and we need to intervene to prevent anyone from relying on this in the future. But you know, who knows? I guess I'd have to read the application for leave to see why they would would have taken it. Although the application doesn't necessarily mean that's why the Supreme Court of Canada thought it was important. Well, like you said, they don't really give reasons anyway, so you never really know, I guess. Leaves are wacky, as uh, as we know. All right, the second thing, and kind of a more important thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, was, and I'm sorry to Eric McGracken, whom I am cheating on by having Brandon talk about something on Eric's blog, <laughs> but uh, I wanted to talk to you about uh, this blog post that Eric wrote on the bc-injury-law.com blog, um, let's talk about criminal drivers and BC victims' rights to sue. So one of the things that happened when they announced the shift to no fault in BC was they said, don't worry, you'll still be able to sue if somebody's committed a criminal offense. And Eric breaks down on why that's maybe a bit of a lie. So can you explain that to people? Because I know you deal with you know, with these, these injury claims as well. Why why is this a problem? Well, I don't know if it's a lie. It's just, it's true, you can. It's just uh, they have to be convicted of a uh, criminal offense, a driving criminal offense, mm -hmm. in a province where, for the past decade, criminal driving, like impaired driving and things like that have been largely decriminalized, um, as you know, better than anyone. Um, <laughs> And and for the ones that do get charged with criminal driving offenses, if they hire a lawyer like you, um, like with many of your clients, there's a good chance that they'll either get some kind of favorable plea or get the charges dropped or never actually get convicted of a criminal offense. Um, so, yes, there are maybe a lot of bad drivers or drivers that um, that meet the elements and they're driving for a criminal offense, but there has to actually be a conviction. Um, and there's a lot of hoops uh, that need to be jumped through, right? The police need to have proper evidence, needs to get crown approval. Uh, there can't be any uh, pleas, like are very common um, to drive without due care and things like that. It needs to be a criminal conviction. Um, and yeah, it, it can be difficult to get to that point, and it takes some time, um, and it's only at that point then you can potentially try and sue, um, and you still can't sue for everything, 
Um, right, you can sue for um, non-pecuniary damages, and which are actually probably the thing that's the most important thing to sue for. Um, for what are non-pecuniary damages? So things that can't be contemplated. Uh, pain and suffering is the more uh, colloquial term for it. Um, which is right if you're in a significant accident, that's that's the big number usually. Um, so it, and then that's the one thing that um, Eric says blog is like, well, you can really only sue for this. And it's like, well, that's what people kind of want to sue for. Uh, um, but it does limit their 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 losses overall. So it's tr that is true as well. Um, but yeah, it's uh, a lot of hoops to jump through. Um, just to get to the point of sue now. You said that you can only sue for like a motor vehicle criminal offense. So if somebody is um, committing like a theft, would that not, you wouldn't have the right to sue them if they were driving a stolen car? Um, yeah, you'd ha I'd have to, uh, <laughs> I'd have to see. Um, I would say no. Um, it can't just be any criminal offense, right? Because there's a huge, there's a huge criminal code. It really is usually related to driving ones, um, because it needs to be related to the actual loss, just like in any crime, um, right? Because so, I mean, if you're driving a stolen car, uh, you right. at fault. You can just be, you could have just stolen a car. The other party could still be even at fault. Right, I mean, we're still in a no-fault system, but fault still matters to determine. Um, yeah, yeah, liability still matters to determine to some extent. It doesn't change benefits except for um, criminal conviction. But again, what if you're drunk and you're behind the wheel and you're sitting at a red light and some idiot rear-ends you and injures themselves? Can that idiot then sue you if you're convicted for being drunk sitting at the red light? No, we, we, the best way to think about this is um, if there is a criminal conviction, it just it just brings us back to before May 1st, before the no-fault system. So then if you think about it, before May 1st, in that situation, right, you look at fault, and the drunk person's not at fault. Right? There are a lot of drunk people um, that are very capable of uh, driving. Don't tell me. Yeah. There's well, you know, there are a lot of high functioning alcoholics and things like that where they can they can drive uh, they can drive just fine. Um, you know, it's it's not great, but uh, and they could still be convicted for you know being over 0.08, but uh, they still need to be liable, uh, right? Just like in any claim, whether motor vehicle or otherwise, any liability is needs to be found against the, the party that's the claim to be being made against. And what about if there's a discharge? So say you're convicted or you're not convicted of dangerous driving, but you get a conditional discharge. Uh, yeah, it's the same thing, just like a, in a, how you would contemplate it in the criminal sense and how it would affect um, the criminal record. So um, the potential for it to to be a factor, uh, potential for it to count as a conviction, and potential for it to not count as a conviction. Well. I mean, from my perspective, I think this is, like, awful because it's hard enough to get the police to attend an accident scene. And then you have, if you're the, you know, injured party and somebody's drunk and has caused a collision, 
you have no power or ability to request or compel the police at that point in time to proceed with a criminal investigation in order to protect your right to sue. Like, you can't say to the police, no, don't give this driver an IRP, which to me is, in some sense, um, inconsistent, perhaps, with the Victims' Bill of Rights in D.C. We have legislation that gives victims of crime certain rights, including to have their opinions and their, their desires considered, although not followed, but at least considered in the course of prosecuting a criminal offense. But if you never get to the point of a prosecution, then the Victims' Bill of Rights really doesn't have much application. Do you think that um, as we see sort of more and more people come to understand how um, sort of detrimental to their rights this new fault system is, do you think that we'll see more people um, arguing or advocating for police to have to take into account the views of an affected individual in determining whether or not to prosecute or whether or not to investigate as a criminal offense as opposed to going by way of IRP? Um, I'd say that's a, that's a kind of a stretch. I think it's just going against kind of how the system has been. Um, I think people would potentially like that. Uh, and, and to some extent, people still think that's like people have this idea from watching TV and whatever that you can press charges kind of thing. So um, people still think that uh, you could probably do that. People think that that's a, a thing. Um, so I guess it wouldn't be that hard to convince people to want to do that because they think they can already. Uh, but changing the system, I'd say that seems unlikely. Um, perhaps training police to better recognize just like uh, as they're supposed to do now so when they come to a scene they look see check the they, they have steps to go through which you know better than anyone to determine whether they should proceed by an irp or proceed by criminal charges such mm -hmm. as have they had past uh, irps or 24 hours or things like that uh looking at the circumstances and the significance of the accident and the level of impairment and things like that. So more training and um, perhaps uh, them you know, looking to take those things even more into account now, especially looking at the severity of the accident and the effect on the victim. Um, although this all really needs to be done roadside, so it can be you know, very difficult to, to do in such a short time and with such a short um, you know, view of the situation, right? Because injuries and things like that can maybe aren't always something that will become clear until much later, especially, you know, we're talking about before the party has even been seen by a doctor. Um, so to some extent, you might, like I'm, I'm saying, police kind of need to play doctor a little bit. Uh, but then there's also the, the adage, which is true, um, which they can do at any time is just be better safe than sorry and always just go with criminal charges or whenever there's a, a you know multiple vehicle accident just proceed with criminal charges uh, and an incumbent on the police and the bc prosecution and the rcmpe division to work together to develop a better policy like a very clear policy of when an irp is appropriate and when it's not because right now, as you know, policy is very loosey-goosey. Like, I've had serious injury cases where the person got an IRP. Um, 
and obviously that's a problem. Uh, yeah, I think that's one thing they can do. Um, I think that's one thing we've seen here is that the um, the IRP system, which has now developed over the last decade, become kind of a staple of um, driving enforcement and hair driving enforcement in the province. Um, in many ways, is uh, contrary to the no fault system, and they they clash uh, here. So, so it's something that needs to be revisited to some extent. Uh, I, I, I'd say they could revisit the whole IRP system, but that's not going to happen. So um, I, I guess the best way to do it is revisit when it's appropriate for an IRP, and maybe the training should focus more on defaulting to criminal charges. Uh, but that's really the whole reason the IRP system was developed was to avoid that. So I, I think we're probably just going to have this clash continue on for for quite some time, and and really. Um, you know, for you and me that, that, that deal with these every day, uh, and Eric, as he mentioned in his blog, um, you know, we're exposed to the anecdotal cases, right? People calling and saying, you know, I was in this horrible injury, I had this horrible injury, and this guy was drunk and whatever, and I'll get those calls and it's like, oh, well, they got an IRP, so, you know, they'll call by CDC and get, get benefits they give you, that's all you can get. Um, and when the province is looking at it, uh, they're looking at the money that's saved and I think when we run the numbers overall it's there, there'll still be savings and overall everyone will be saving money uh, on premiums and things like that um, so you know the lawyers are more exposed to the those anecdotal cases and the ones that you see in the news but in reality when the province is running the numbers they're and doing it kind of uh, uh, from uh, being sort of more removed from the specifics of each case um, they're going to think that this is great and nothing's really going to change. So, well, okay. Now let me ask you this: What about a private prosecution for impaired driving? Um, that's interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I uh, how do you think that would work? Well, again, I mean, you'd have the observations of of the driver, the victim driver. Um, and they would, uh, in the same way that impaired, you know, impaired simpliciter is proven in any, um, in any regular impaired driving case, the observations and demeanor of the individual and, uh, you know, that will go to prove beyond reasonable doubt or not that the person was impaired by a drug or alcohol, you know, an odor of liquor coupled with unusual behavior, bad driving, um, an admission to consuming alcohol or a drug. I mean, if the police did come and an IRP was issued, you know, the, the evidence that the police gathered in the course of the IRP investigation short of the ASD test result. Um, if there was an ASD refusal, obviously you have that element of it still being the same as a criminal refusal. So I think a private prosecution would be possible. Would a IRP being issued roadside bar a private prosecution? Do they have to unwind the IRP somehow? I don't think so, because there's nothing that says that you can't be charged criminally if you receive an IRP. There's a Crown Council policy for their determinations about whether or not to approve or continue with a charge, but a private prosecution, by and large, proceeds absent the involvement of uh, of Crown Council. I mean, obviously, the, the ministry can get involved and can stay the proceedings, but 
if they have to take into account the factors in the Victim's Bill of Rights, and if it is impacting somebody's right to seek a civil remedy, then, you know, potentially it, it could be some type of an abusive process to stay the proceedings in a private prosecution where otherwise the, the approval of the charge approval standard is met. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. I think it's another kind of can of worms. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think probably the... I'm not saying I've solved the no-fault problem here. <laughs> You're just excited to start ad hocking on these. Um, oh yeah, I'm going to start private prosecutions against hairdryers because <laughs> I've got plenty of time for that. Uh, adding that to my to my practice. Um, yeah, I mean, anything's kind of on the table, I, I guess. Um, I'm I'm still pessimistic that the like I said, the province can look at the numbers and be like everything's fine. So. Mm -hmm. um, but, but there, it's, and, and there are severe cases that we see every day, like Eric mentioned his blog, and then after I was also just kind of Googling and pulling up some recent news articles, and there's so many that you know, people saying, like, I was in this horrible accident, and you know, I didn't do anything, that kind of thing. So, um, and, and I think Eric mentioned in his blog to, to write your MP kind of thing, so maybe people do that, uh, we can have some of these ideas uh, considered. I think probably the first step is the like more stricter or defined approach to when to proceed RIP versus when to proceed criminal. Yeah. Um, and I think that could solve a lot of the issues, but um, it won't change even if it's private prosecution or that, um, it won't change the lengthy process to get to the conviction without pleas, discharges, or anything like that stays. I assume that ICDC would have the right to apply to um, strike the pleadings if a criminal conviction hasn't been entered, which could be a problem for limitation periods as well. Uh, yes, um, I think the also issues, well, I guess it depends on when the when that would start, I, I think they could. There could be an argument that the um, the right to sue doesn't. Well, the date of conviction is the start of the limitation date. Yeah, that did cross my mind. I'm not an expert in this. That's why you're on the podcast. <laughs> but, but it probably won't come up because ICBC um, and their legal team and people that deal with this are pretty smart, and usually you'll just file early and then keep renewing and wait on it, so you don't have enough to. Uh, go through a nervous chambers application where you're arguing the limitation date, hoping it doesn't get dismissed, and your client loses out on a million dollars or whatever the claims were. Um, so usually, uh, it's something that you you'll just keep right away once they're once they're charged or looks like they're going to be charged, and you know, renew the pleadings or sit on it and wait um, until it becomes clear that you have the right to sue. Okay. Well, Brandon, it's time for my favorite part of the week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. And I'm gonna I'm gonna send you the uh the video because you're gonna have to watch this so you can see just how bad it is. But this is a person who is trying to reverse, this is in the UK, 
they're trying to just reverse stall park their car. And it takes eight minutes. And we're not talking like a parking lot that's really tight with like not a lot of spaces open and not a lot of room to maneuver. Tons of room for this car to pull forward and back. And multiple open spaces next to each other. But eight minutes long. The, the, the poor driver, he keeps trying to back up into a spot. He's on an angle. He's over the line. Um, he just cannot get it right. And eventually, um, he he does he does do it. Um eventually he does, but after eight minutes. It's uh it's definitely worth um worth watching. You can find it if you Google Bad Driver Goes Hilariously Viral After Worst Parking Job Ever. I'm watching it right now. It's they they I'll I'll give I'll kind of a little bit of a break. They, they look like small spots. All the cars next to him, they're small cars and they're all like right up against the line. His car's a small car, and he's driving like a Prius or something. Yeah, but there's the, the, the cars next to him are also very small cars, and they're all against the line. I mean, I don't think it should take that long, but maybe like two or three tries. But I don't know. I'll, I'm, I'll try to park nose in. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> that's the other thing I was thinking. Like, why don't you just do that? That's what I always do. I hardly ever reverse. I can't reverse stall park. I know my limitations, and so I don't. I mean, I, I can do it. I just, it's, I just never do because it's easier to pull in. I, I don't have a fancy backing camera. I wonder if he has a backing camera. That's the other thing I want to know. Oh yeah. In the, uh, Looks in like the a relatively new car, so it probably does. Well, I know it's, it's cars. Cars from twenty eighteen on all have to have it. Really? Yes, it's standard. And I believe twenty eighteen on. There's a tip for anyone if they try if you try and buy a new car and they're trying to sell you oh, little features like a backing camera, just say ha you have to have that. Don't sell me that as an upsell. Uh, yeah, I think it's actually it might not be that might be a Canadian regulation though, or yeah. something like that. So it might not be in the UK uh, or across the world. But I but anyway, at least here 2018 on all cars have backing cameras. So. Yeah, I mean, you'd think that they'd be able to, if they did have that, things a little bit easier, but maybe they're just a perfectionist. That's true. You came sure. close to, like, the second or third time this year. I thought it would have been good enough. You, you, also, know, you want to know a secret? When traffic court, like, reopened last summer and it was in, in schools, for whatever reason, every time I had to go to Kids High for traffic court, I could not park in the lines. And it was the same thing. It was like a totally normal parking lot. There was lots of room. There were plenty of open spaces every time. Every time I tried to pull my car into a spot, I was over the line. So eventually I was like, eh, and I just parked like an asshole the entire summer. There was something with the, the Kids High. I, I mean, I, I had issues. I feel like every time I went there for traffic court, I had to circle around it once because I would always miss where to pull in for the parking lot. Mm -hmm. That was a confusing place. It was confusing. Yeah, I blame the parking lot too. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, no, I definitely parked like a jerk. But I figured there were so many open spaces and not that people got many people going, so it was fine, right? That's fine. Yeah, and plus I'm in Vancouver, so I can park like an idiot and people will just take a picture of my car and make fun of me on the internet. Yeah, it's just like what we're doing right now. Yeah. 
<laughs> so there we go. Now I'm the ridiculous driver of the week. All right, speaking of traffic court, I have to go because I have traffic court. So thank you again, Brandon, for joining me on the podcast. And if people need to reach Brandon, he works in our Richmond office, and you can call him at 604-370-3050. Or if you need to reach our Vancouver office, give us a call at 604-685-8889. You can also find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.